Welcome to the next episode of the Innovation in Education podcast. I'm Matt Pimentel, the Cheltenham Supervisor of Professional Learning and Gifted Education, and I have with me... I'm uh, Brian Riley. I'm the Supervisor of STEM K-12 for Cheltenham School District. And I'm AJ Giuliani. I also work in the Public School District, Director of Learning and Innovation for Centennial School District, and the author of Empower. Uh, all right, guys. Thanks for being here. Um, so we're on Chapter 8 of Empower, and um, since we have the author here, just wanted to spend a little time diving in because this is one of the more technical chapters in the book, um, and arguably in some senses from a from an implementation standpoint, if you're a teacher, this is maybe um, really like the linchpin or the most important big shift you can make uh, when trying to empower learners. Um, so the focus of Chapter 8 is all about assessment strategies. Um, so I thought we'd just kind of open it up. Um, AJ, maybe you can sort of just talk to us about how this chapter fits in with the book in general um, and why you focused on this um, and, and sort of the overall importance of assessment and empowering students. Yeah, so I, mean, I think kind of the, the overarching theme of empower is moving from compliance-based uh, learning where you're telling kids what they should learn to engagement where you're getting them excited about what you want them to learn, to empowerment, where they're now owning their learning experience. And the biggest piece of that is having them demonstrate their understanding and skills through assessment. And, you know, assessment is typically thought about in the education world as the end of something. Uh, and I, one of the things that we kind of really talk about in this chapter is that assessment's happening all the time. Right? Um, it can happen at the end of a unit, but it can happen all the time. You are consistently self-assessing yourselves. And um, I think one of the big pieces of this chapter and just the book as a whole is that if we want to rethink uh, student ownership and what that looks like, we have to start about the experiences that we design. And one of the ones that we always are designing as institutions are assessments and they can be some of the most hurtful and damaging uh, of the learning experience because if you're taking a multiple choice test, you are going to learn differently for that performance test. Versus if you're creating a documentary, your learning is going to look very different for that performance task. And so that's kind of what we try to dive in and be as practical as we can uh, while still leaving it up for some interpretation at your individual classes and, and subjects. Uh, so I'm thinking... When, when I look at some of the examples of ways that teachers can make assessment authentic, um, one example, uh, Brian and I have both been to High Tech High in California quite a few times. And one of the examples that we're often given there is high school students writing fictional stories. The way that the teacher sets it up is that they're writing a fictional story for a second grader who is in the same school. So they like march them down, they get set up with a, what do they call them, my um, Buddy, second grade buddy, second grade or buddy, yeah. yeah. And it's like this is your buddy, and you're writing a story for them. And so then now it's not about turning the fictional story into the teacher; it's about writing for a particular kid. So we hear things like that. And it's like that's awesome, that's great. Um, but but I'm thinking sort of like more globally. Where would you recommend teachers start if they're thinking like, okay, I want to make my assessments more authentic? Like, where do I start? How yeah. how do I do that? So I think you're backwards designing, right? And you're basically saying, all right, I work in a public school district, you guys do. We have curriculum, we have scope and sequence, we have state standards. 
So start from the place of like, what is it that you want students to demonstrate and understand in there? What standards, what skills, what you know, key essential understandings do, do we want them to demonstrate and understand in there? And then you design a performance task around that. Um, so one example I showed is of high school teachers who are teaching trigonometry in pre-cal. They started with what did they want their kids to kind of demonstrate an understanding of, and they end up coming up with a project uh, that is air traffic controller, right? Because a lot of the work that an air traffic controller does has to deal with trigonometry and those different types of things. And so you couldn't have come up with that performance task unless you were starting with those skills and standards that you want to hit. And a lot of times we hear from people, but what about the curriculum? But what about the standards? But what about the test? Okay with the first two, but the test doesn't have to be the only way that you do a performance test, right? Uh, so I would say always kind of start with that, that backwards design. Um, you know, if you're an English or language arts teacher, you're looking at reading, writing, speaking, listening, you know, presenting type skills, uh, and really kind of starting with that, uh, with, the, with the end in mind of, of what that can look like. But I think one of the bigger pieces that we often miss when we talk about assessment is how can I also create opportunities where students self-assess? Because if you look at all of Hattie's work, uh, what he basically says is that, you know, the biggest indicator of student achievement is that self-assessment and self-reflection, and we don't do enough of that, right? So what does that look like on a daily basis? How can we bring that in? If a kid's playing a video game, they're consistently self-assessing their play, and they're having lots of feedback from the teacher, the, the game, uh, on how well they're performing. If a kid's at a skate park and they're skating, they're getting feedback all the time. They're not landing that trick. If you're shooting a basketball, you're getting feedback all the time. You're not making the basket. So assessment isn't just that end result. It's also the feedback that they're giving themselves and we are giving them as teachers throughout the learning process. If you don't have that feedback, then it can't ever really be authentic at sure. the end of a unit. Sure. Um, to dive into that a little bit deeper, I'm thinking... Uh, so some of the like some of the examples you've given, and, and when you are able to connect the real world to what students are working on, there is that um, I guess you call it like a, a natural feedback loop, yeah. right? You're doing something, and sort of like the universe tells you if you're doing it right or yeah. not. Um, but then there are other things that are more academic in nature. Um, so you know, a calculus problem, or um, you know, proper grammar. When as the student, I don't really know the proper grammar. So, so there are there sort of technical spaces where teachers come in as the experts. They, they are, in fact, the expert in those kind of spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, how might teachers sort of think about their role as the technical expert who is, who is there to be the provider of the feedback, yeah. um, but also trying to do it in a way that may not look like it has traditionally looked? Yeah, one of the things that I think we, we, uh, we do a misstep is we try to assess too many things at once. So if I'm, I'm a, if I'm a science teacher or I'm an English teacher or I'm an elementary teacher, if I give the kids a project to do or a performance task to do and I'm trying to assess 20 things, it's hard for the teacher, but it's also hard for the learner. Uh, so a lot of times we'll use what we call focus correction areas, which be, you know, in this project we're looking at three specific things. It might be subject-verb agreement if I'm an English teacher, or it might be, you know, what you're kind of talking about is, as a math teacher. But what that allows you to do as the teacher is do mini lessons on those focus correction areas, have that be a focus when they're doing the performance task, and have your feedback then be connected to them instead of 20 things. 
that really kind of isolates what the skills and kind of focus you're assessing are and also gives the students kind of clear path for how they can demonstrate an understanding of that uh, instead of being like we're gonna assess everything uh, and, 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 and waiting six weeks to assess it right? right instead have these mini assessments along the way that are doing those focus correction areas that's much more like the real world where you're not assessed on everything right uh, you're kind of you have a project and you're supposed to do one thing right with that project your job may entail all kinds of things but mm -hmm. they don't always come to play in every single kind of task that you do in your job gotcha well, the, and i think the other piece is that you have to recognize like what does success look like yeah so that when we're assessing we we all have a common language around success and redirection so that if it's a teacher doing the assessment if it's a student doing self-assessment if it's a peer doing an assessment to another peer then the language around success is the same for everyone. And that's that's stated up front so that as I'm moving forward in a project or on a math problem, whatever the case may be, my direction is guided by that measure of success. Yeah, and as often as, as we can, getting their input, right? The, the kids' input on what success would look like. Part of that is that mastery piece, which we, we don't hit on a lot, which is um, not just giving one chance to demonstrate your understanding, but giving multiple opportunities to demonstrate your understanding. I mean, how many people failed the driver's test the first time? Okay. Right? I mean, right. lots of people have done that, but it wasn't like, all right, you're not a driver. You know, like, let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> right? right? Like, right. try to fly a plane. Like, that's what we do, right? <laughs> we give some, we give them a test, and then we give them a harder test without them ever mastering that first thing. And it's right. like, who would let somebody fly a plane that hasn't first had another driver's license, right? But that's what we yeah. do all the time in school. We don't have any of that mastery and, and kind of that success of letting kids attain that. That's the idea of thinking assessment is some sort of finality right. to a process where it's simply a step in the process. Part of the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, another book that AJ's written is Launch, which is a sort of exploration of design thinking in an educational context. Um, and I see some of that kind of filtering in through this book in different oh, yeah. places. Um, and one of them specifically when you start talking about having peers assess each other. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm thinking about the design thinking process around specifically the critique and revision phase. Um, so I, I know that if I, I, I taught seventh grade literature, and if someone came to me and they're like, you should have the kids grade each other's papers, yeah. I, I'd be like, not a chance <laughs> yeah. are we doing that. Um, and that would have been my response yeah. to somebody suggesting that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm thinking, but now that I think more about it, I'm like, but how maybe could I have fostered that? Um, if I had approached it in the right way, then maybe that could have happened. Um, so I'm just curious to sort of hear your general thoughts about the idea of peers being, seeing as they're not experts, how, what role do they play in critiquing each other's work? It's funny. You know how like there's all these kids online watching other people play Fortnite, right? Like that's a big right. thing. Or Minecraft or mm -hmm. anything like that. But part of the reason that they're so interested in doing that is that while watching somebody who they know is exemplar and Fortnite play, they're assessing their own, right? So uh, they're, they're kind of self-assessing because the next time they play, they're not just taking what they do versus their brother. They're doing it against Ninja, the best Fortnite player in the world, right? Like that's the type of thing. We hardly ever do that in school. We don't give the kids an exemplar, right, of which to base their feedback on. And yet they okay. do it in real life all the time. They watch skateboarding videos to see the kids doing the tricks. That's how they're measuring their success. But in that seventh grade class, Okay, if you just have them pure assess with only reading theirs and somebody else's, they don't have a frame of reference. So you need to bring exemplars into the, into the, 
right? So if you peer assess and you have an exemplar, now you're kind of saying, all right, this is what you know, uh, an A would look like, or this is what this, I can now kind of give some real feedback because I've kind of, you know, dove into what that looks like. The design thinking part of that is um, a lot of times we don't take the steps ourselves to have the look, listen, and learn moment, right? Where we're learning ourselves before giving the feedback. We're just giving it right away. Whereas you see the kids in the real world or us in the real world, we want to look for examples. We want to ask questions. We want to look at prototypes before we do that, right? Iteration doesn't happen before the prototype. It happens after the prototype. <laughs> uh, but a lot of times, we try to kind of put it right at the beginning without having kids go through that process. So that's a missing piece a lot of times when we do highlighting principles. I think that's a piece, you know, going to industry. So I, before getting education, I was an engineer yeah. um, designing fire sprinklers. Um, so one of the things we would always do was, so there's a, a, a product line that we haven't tapped into yet, yeah. but they have, a competitor has. So what are they doing? And that becomes our first prototype. Let's let's reverse engineer what someone else has done. Exactly. So right. take that example. Take what Ninja's doing, mm -hmm. and how does that apply to what I do? How can we do it? Yeah. You know, I think they even take the the book and power. We we had the idea of creating a highly visual book based on reading Austin Kleon's "Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work," and we're like, what would a book like this look like in education? If we didn't have that exemplar. We never can make a book or iterate based on the book that we already had without that piece there. So that's a, I think it's a big part of the creative process you're talking about. You know, we're trying to reverse engineer, right? How can we create an education book that looks and feels more like this Austin Kleon type of book, just right. in a different feel? Um, so my last question for you is, again, kind of a bigger picture question. Um, you know, so we've got students whose learning is connected to the real world. They're self-assessing their own work. They're assessing each other's work. Um, you know, at some point, you start to describe this this sort of scene. If you're thinking about it like a very traditional classroom, at some point you're like, "Well, where's the teacher?" Right. <laughs> and 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 as you put more and more of the onus onto the students in terms of what it is they're doing, I think a big question does sort of appear, which is, what is the role of a teacher in sort of that exemplar 21st century, highly innovative classroom? You know, what are your thoughts? Like, what does that look like? What is the role of the teacher um, as assessor, et cetera? Yeah, I think it's a big misconception about um, giving kids choice or doing this kind of project-based stuff and, and even this whole kind of being a guide or facilitator. As a teacher, you're the one structuring the learning experiences, right? Like, you're the one giving time constraints. You're the ones that are kind of building out um, you know, what these experiences look like, where they start, who they were, all those different types of things. And so you're really a learning experience designer, right, if I, if I kind of had any way to put it. And um, you're reverse engineering what you kind of want the experience to look like, knowing it's not going to exactly be like that. So, you know, if you're teaching a traditional classroom, you're giving the kids the information, uh, you're then, you know, assessing them on the information and moving on. And this looks very different. You're allowing the kids to search for the information on their own, to find and develop that information, to work with people under constraints uh, to come up with solutions and develop and create and those different types of things. But along the line, like you're giving lots of feedback, right? So you're the master learner in the classroom. You may not always be the master in the content area, but you're definitely the master learner. You've done the best learning, and so you're, you understand the learning experience. You see when groups are struggling, when you need to step in and help point them in the right direction and redirect them out. I always give the example of like, 
Obi-Wan in Star Wars, right? I'm sorry if you're not a Star Wars fan. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, if he had just said to Luke, like, look, use the Force, go to the Death Star, just navigate inside this little kind of alleyway and shoot right here, and, like, and if Luke had just said, all right, I'll do it, it'd be the worst five-minute movie ever, right? <laughs> but our learners don't do that. They don't just take exactly what they're in. Nobody is compliant by nature. And also, Luke wouldn't have learned anything. Right? So he's learning through the act of taking the plan that Obi-Wan gave him, calling the action, going through those things, failing, failing along the way, iterating along the way, iterating along the way. And that's how you learn. You don't learn uh, you know, by having success you know, in, in immediate things. So it has to be challenging or something you know, along those lines. Teachers, though, this is hard. right? So uh, if you're a teacher, the easiest thing you can do is teach from the textbook and, and give a test and collect it and scan drawn and then give it back and teach from the textbook or use technology and teach from the digital textbook and give them an online test, right? The hard thing about this is that there is no specific kind of always like a right answer, right? Um, and so having kids demonstrate real understanding uh, is a lot of gray area. And a part of it is not just assessing, since you're talking about assessment, their final product, but assessing the process. Uh, one of the best tools I've seen for that is the GRIT rubric. It was developed by San Francisco College Track, and basically it's a process-driven uh, rubric. And lots of times it helps kids self-assess themselves. The G stands for guts, the R for resiliency, the I for integrity, the T for tenacity, and it has three indicators. It's academics, and it's future ready, and I forget the other one teamwork or something like that but now they're assessing themselves and as a teacher you can go back and forth looking at how they are seeing their work versus how you're seeing your work and so I think that that feedback loop is really critical role for the teacher in this classroom whereas you're not really giving feedback in the traditional classroom until the assessment is done in this type of classroom you're giving feedback all the time as you would in a video game or skateboard or, or the real world right you're getting feedback from your peers or or your bosses or whoever um, in the real world. So the role of the teacher has changed, um, but it's it's not necessarily hard, it's just different, right? It's it's a completely different role than what we all experience when we we're in the classroom. Well, AJ, thanks very much. Appreciate having you. Yeah. Um, and uh, we look forward to a continued relationship and discussion in the future. Yeah, no, thanks again for having me on, guys. and. Uh, I think one of the biggest things you can do if you're a teacher and you're listening to this is to just think about, right, be very self-reflective yourself and self-assessment yourself and be like, where do I have moments in where I'm currently teaching where I could try something different, right? Instead of wishing for the state to change the standards or wishing for your school district to change something, like, where do you currently have those moments and times where you can do something different and start there right i think once you get the ball rolling other stuff will happen but start small start with the day don't start with some big six-week project you're gonna drive yourself <laughs> nuts start as right. small as you can with an activity that gives some kids some choice and some ownership what right. page is that on in the book yeah right. <laughs> remember you, you actually shared on on day one of the school year try for one day oh yes page what like page 108 103 yeah, try something for like one that. day try, try for one, one day, day. Yeah. that's right um try yeah so day. we're always trying to assess too much yeah we try to, try to do something big. different for one day um yeah, yeah that, you know it's funny that was the same message i gave our teachers in our opening and i that's that awesome. the last thing i asked them to do was to open up to this page yeah um and yeah try for one day so that's i think it. that's a great yeah. way to complete yeah. it yeah all right great thanks guys thanks guys thanks